morning and happy Mother's Day to all of you, especially you fathers. Great relief. All the gifts have been purchased. Cards done. You're, you're good for another year. <laughs> well, there's one more guest that I failed uh, to introduce to you, my good friend Luke Kendrick. Luke, stand up. He's in the back. He is a guest here today. Oh, yes, and his lovely fiance, my daughter, Katie. <laughs> yes, great to have them both. Well, in honor of mothers today, I'd like to tell my favorite joke that my mother always told. I may have told it before, but it is definitely worth repeating. The perfect man and the perfect woman were in this car driving toward an intersection. Santa Claus was in another car headed toward that same intersection. They got there, there was a fatal collision, but one survived. Who was it? It was the perfect woman, because the other two don't exist. <laughs> and all the women said, Amen. Amen. That's right. Well, years ago, I remember Kathy and I were at one of our daughter's many uh, athletic games, and we were sitting there. It was kind of the warm-up, I think, before the game was getting started. And uh, this particular coach was, uh, you know, a bit rough around the edges. And we all kind of tolerated this coach because, well, you know, she was a great coach. And so we'd win games, and you know, we'd sort of kind of overlook the fact that she was rough around the edges. Well, during one of the warm-up or something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but this coach said something very harsh, rude, and flat-out wrong to uh, one of our daughters. And I heard it. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to let that slide this time. And I think... I heard my wife, as I stood up to walk over there, I think I heard my wife say, Wayne, don't do it. <laughs> but it was that moment that you don't hear anything but the voice of God. And so you're just walking over there. And you know, with every step, it's just, you're just getting hotter and hotter. And I don't know. When I got there, she, the, the coach turned and looked at me. And I won't tell you the details of everything that was said in the context of this Christian school, but let's just say I stepped outside of the will of God for about 30 seconds. And I'm not proud of it. And, uh, of course, this coach followed suit. And uh, it, there was no, no resolution there other than just uh, she just walked off. And, of course, I walked off, sat back down, <laughs> and my wife says nothing the rest of the game, just kind of pats me on the leg. But, you know, the Holy Spirit and my conscience really got to working on me over the next few days, and I thought, rats, I need to apologize to this coach. And I didn't figure the coach would apologize to me, and, and she never did. But I thought, you know, what is the most effective way? If I, if I called the coach, that wouldn't go well. If I talked face-to-face, -face, definitely wouldn't go well. So I wrote the coach a letter. I couldn't think of a better way to do it and just basically apologized for my behavior. Never heard back. And as far as I know, I mean, our, our um, interaction with that coach and the character of the coach really never changed. But I've, I've always looked back at that time and thought, you know, why is it that some people are so slow 
to change. So slow to change. Let's step outside my little world for a second and think about your world, because you're much more familiar with it. Think about the people in your life that really frustrate you. And we're not just talking about the little, you know, idiosyncrasies of leaving your socks on the floor, that kind of thing. I'm talking about character issues, ungodly issues that you have to deal with and have had to deal with for years. And you've prayed and you've asked God and you've talked to this person. You may have even quoted scripture to this person, whatever. But they don't change. It just, in fact, sometimes the changing goes the opposite direction and it just gets worse. Why does it take so long to change? Well, that's question number one. Question number two, we'll get to as we look at the book of Philippians. So turn, if you would, with me to the book of Philippians. And once you find Philippians chapter 2, keep your place there and turn to Acts chapter 16. So Philippians 2 and Acts 16. And Acts 16 is where we will begin. We're continuing in our series this week where we take a single message from each book of the Bible. We are in the middle of Paul's letters, Paul's epistles. And remember that each of Paul's epistles fit within a history, within a historical section. It's sort of like in the Old Testament. You know, you read the Old Testament, there are three big sections to the Old Testament. There's the historical section, there's the poetical section, and there's the prophetical section. History, poetry, prophecy. And the poets and the prophets all fit back inside the history. So you can take all the poetical books and prophet, prophet, prophet books and, and just sprinkle them into the history because they, they all fit there. The New Testament's very much the same. In the book of Acts, you can take so many of the epistles and put them in their historical place. And so that's why we're in Acts chapter 16, to try to set the historical context before we look at the book of Philippians. In the, the missionary journeys of Paul, he actually had taken his first journey already, and on his second journey, there was a very interesting thing that happened. Acts chapter 16, um, if you were to just kind of look at the beginning, we won't read from the beginning, but if you just kind of glance down through, you'll see sort of what's happening. Uh, end of 15, Paul and Silas leave Antioch, and they're headed off on missionary journey number two. Paul wanted to re revisit the churches that he had uh, visited on missionary journey one. And so they head off and they head that direction. And they get to Derby and Lystra. And you can see there in verse one at Lystra, they pick up a disciple named Timothy. So now there's three of them there on the journey, Paul, Silas, Timothy. And they begin, as you, as you kind of glance down through the verses, it talks about how they, verse six, it says they pass through Phrygian and Galatian region, and then it says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Hmm. Verse 7, and after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Now, I read that, and sometimes I think, you know, I think, aren't they on a missionary journey? Isn't this like the whole point is to go share the gospel with these places? And we're told that the Holy Spirit didn't let them go. The door slams in their face, and they try to go somewhere else, and the Spirit of Jesus stops them and won't let them go there. And there have been times in my life where I've sort of done that. 
you know, maybe in your life as well. You're headed one direction. You think, Lord, this is clearly your will. And then the door slams in your face. And you're thinking, why? Why, God? Why if I'm, you know, out preaching the gospel or if I'm sharing or if I'm living a life that honors you and you shut the door in my face? Why in the world would that happen? Well, when they get to Troas, verse 9, we're told, we figure out why. In verse 9, we're told that a vision appears to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing and appealing, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul puts two and two together. Oh, God didn't want us to start here. He slammed these doors so that we could go here. And if you were to look at a map, you would see that as when they crossed over and went to Philippi, as ultimately was stop number one, this is the first uh, converts that we'll see on the continent of uh, Europe. And so now the, the Lord is moving from not just Jerusalem spreading out farther than getting into Asia or modern Turkey, and then now jumped the, uh, the water into Europe. So that brings us to verse 13. They're now in Philippi. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you found me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this woman, Lydia, is the first convert to Jesus Christ in the whole continent of Europe. The ministry of the Apostle Paul, along with his traveling companions, Silas, Luke, Timothy, Luke is now part of it. He's the author of uh, the book of Acts. Notice it says, we landed here. So now we know that in addition to Paul and Silas and Timothy, Lucas joined the party. And they begin their ministry here in Philippi with great success. But as is often the case, when there is success of the gospel, the enemy of the gospel steps in and begins to throw up roadblocks. And uh, we won't read the details of it, but you know the story that happens after this. They're going to the place of prayer, and this slave girl who has a demon by which she tells fortunes for the locals basically gets in the way of, of the ministry of Paul. Paul casts out the demon, so now there's no fortune-telling, and the owners of this, uh, of this demon girl, this, this poor girl, um, get frustrated. So all our money's gone. There's only a couple of times in the book of Acts that non-Jews... Uh, go lock horns with Paul, and that's it, it's over money both times. One is here in Philippi, and the other is in Ephesus. And so they throw Paul and Silas in jail after whipping them, after flogging them. And then, of course, you know what happens there. There is a uh, the original Philippian jailhouse rock, as it were, and the uh, earthquake happens. The, the doors fly open, and the jailer thinks, "Oh, everyone's escaped." And he's going to take his life because he realizes he's going to be killed uh, for letting all the prisoners escape. And Paul stops him and says, nope, we're all still here. And then the jailer, recognizing that 
in an amazing twist of irony that the jailer was really the one imprisoned, tells, asks the ones who were truly free, that is Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And a simple question gets a simple answer. Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, you don't have to be baptized or a church member or have a certain haircut. You don't have to quit smoking. You don't have to quit cussing. Just believe. And then once you're saved, God will take care of the rest. Just believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again. God opened the heart. And I guess when we think about why it takes lives so long to change, a great thing to realize here, to look at here, is that how did Lydia change? We're told in verse 14, God opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the word. Some people, it takes a simple thing like just hearing the word, and boom, that's all it takes. God opens their heart. For other people, like this jailer, it takes a life crisis. And then they're willing to hear. In fact, they even ask the question, what can I do to be saved? For Lydia, all it took was hearing the word. For the jailer, it took a life crisis. Well, if we keep reading in the book of Acts, we see in the next missionary journey, Paul's third journey, he goes back through Philippi a couple of more times, retraces his steps one way, and then he backtracks through Philippi again on his way to Jerusalem, where he is arrested and ultimately sent to Rome as a prisoner. And this is, I think it's, what, 12 years now after Paul met the Philippians for the very first time, he is imprisoned in Rome, and he writes them a letter, the book of Philippians. So look at Philippians. I think I said chapter 2. Sorry, look at chapter 1, Philippians 1. And verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, as we read the background there in Acts 16, you get a little bit more out of these first few verses than if we just started here in Philippians. Because it says Paul and Timothy. They would have known Timothy. Timothy went with Paul, didn't he? And then he says in verse 3, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Paul had been to Philippi a number of times. We saw that as well. And then it says, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember, Lydia said, why don't you come stay in my house? That was the first day. Until now, Paul says, you're still helping to provide for the ministry. And then he has this wonderful verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, 
that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, why does it take people so long to change? Here's principle number one that we get from verse 6. Simple principle, but so true. God alone opens our heart to Christ for spiritual growth. God alone opens our heart to Christ for spiritual growth. We can and we should have great strategies like Paul. Paul typically would go and he would pick a city that was strategic geographically, politically. He would go into a synagogue because he knew these people were most receptive. In Philippi, he went down to a river because that was a place of prayer. He was expecting people who were um, spiritually sensitive. Key city, strategic day, the Sabbath, an interested audience. But when it gets right down to it, it's the Lord that changes hearts. It's not Paul. It's not his great skill as a teacher or as a preacher or evangelist. It was the Lord who changes hearts. We saw in Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And that's why we should pray with that in mind. Because when we are looking at people who need to change, it's the Lord that does that work. We can't do it. We'd love to be able to do it. We could uh, have a lifetime's work of fixing things, couldn't we? But it's the Lord who does it. And it's not ultimately about having the right answers. It's about praying that God opens their heart to respond. For Lydia, all it took was hearing the word. For the jailer, it took a crisis. We pray toward that end. If God's going to change somebody's life, Lord, bring whatever it takes to change them. Whether it's simply responding to the word, which is the best way, we, we could say, the least painful way, or bring on the earthquake if that's what it takes to open their mind to being receptive to Jesus. God alone opens the heart for spiritual growth. And it happens a couple of ways, either through hearing the word or it happens through, um, through earthquakes. Now, let's do a little simple exercise. Look, uh, look around at the, at the person next to you and say these simple words. Say them out loud. You need to change. Go ahead, look, and say that. Yeah, now, now look back and forth the other way. Uh-huh, ahead of you, behind you, you need to change. Yes, and you, madam, really need to change. <sighs> okay, you can stop. Stop now. Doesn't that feel better? Doesn't that just feel so good to say that? Yeah. Here's, here's, the, here's the uncomfortable part of that. They were also talking to you, weren't they? That's right. We need to change. I need to change. It's not just you need to change. I need to change. And that is our challenge. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. I did my part, Apollos did his part, but God was causing the growth. So all the people in your life and my life that need to change, whether it's a spouse, whether it's children, whether it's parents, whether it's grandchildren, whether it's friends who just don't seem to listen, that person who just doesn't seem to get it, 
your boss, your co-workers, even your pastor, whoever it is, God alone causes the change. God alone causes the change. Paul's experience at Philippi and his letter to the Philippians make this clear. His experience in, in, in Philippi, he saw that the Lord opened her heart. And he wrote here in Philippians that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, notice God is the one that started your spiritual journey. He who began it, God, is the one that's going to complete it. What does that also imply? You still need to change. Even though you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, even though I have, we've still got a long way to go. And the great promise we have from God is that at our, at our terrible lost state when we first came to Christ, God saved us out of grace. We can think, we can think now, okay, Lord, I got this. You go take care of those people who, who really need changing. I'll see you at the rapture. The Lord is like, nope, what I started in you, I'm going to finish in you because you need finishing. His grace still helps us here in the, in the daily Christian life. And his promise, verse 6 is a promise. He who began a good work will perfect it. Perfect it. That is an absolute completion of your spiritual life. And notice when it, when it ends until the day of Christ Jesus. It is a lifetime project of us changing. We never get to the point to where now we're done unless the day of Christ Jesus, which is referring to the coming of Christ, or our death when we're face to face with Christ. Whenever we are asking, Lord, why don't they change? We could also ask ourselves, why don't I change? Because the answer is the same answer. God does the changing. God brings that earthquake, or God brings that word that hits us just right and causes our mind to change and go, man, I need to change, in such a way that we actually do change. God alone makes it happen until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's not, but on our part, it's not just a passive thing. God does all the work, great, I don't got to do anything. Nope, there is something that we do. We cooperate with God. Look at how that happens. Look at chapter 3, verse 3, Philippians 3.3. 3. Paul writes, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count, I count all things to be a loss in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul's basically saying, ironically, the true circumcision is not those people who put confidence in the physical act. 
You know, this was a Jewish tradition that, hey, if I'm circumcised, I'm in the Abrahamic covenant, I'm good to go. Paul says, no, we don't put confidence in the flesh, not literally or, or uh, 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 figuratively. Our confidence, true circumcision, is that is we are not confident in, a, in an act that happens. We are confident in an act that has happened to us. It's the work that God has done to us. And the lists of Paul's accomplishments of what he had done is pretty impressive. Now, we read this and we think, eh, no big deal. But, I mean, like we could, we could say today this is like, uh, you know, the successful CEO of a $20 million you know, business or ministry or having an MBA from, you know, wherever you get great MBAs from. Whatever your pedigree is for the world that was the top, Paul had it. What he lists here is what every single Jew would have aspired to be. Paul says, I was it. I was the top of the heap. And I consider all of this, Paul says, as rubbish. Now, the word he uses here for rubbish is the Greek word skubala. Rubbish. That's a really nice translation. Does anybody else have a different translation that you don't mind saying out loud? Garbage. That's nice. Filthy rags. That's interesting. Well, actually, none of those is right. Refuse. Now we're getting closer. Excrement is the word. And it's not just that, but, you know, there's different ways to say that word. (laughs) Different ways to say that word. I'm not going to give the literal translation because I still want to teach this class. But can we say crap at church? It's worse than that. I won't say it again. But that's the idea. And imagine the, how the Philippians, when they, when they read this, would have reacted. I consider all of this wonderful stuff I've done to be excrement, next to knowing Jesus Christ. He says that is the contrast, and that's the contrast that they needed to realize. The world's best and highest honors don't compare to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And knowing Christ is the goal. Look at verse 12. He actually says this. He says, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Notice that. I have not become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as living, laying hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Now, he uses the word here, perfect, at least this translation. Hopefully you have a marginal reading or a different translation that says mature. It's the same word, but it's sort of a play on words. Paul isn't saying, uh, I haven't become perfect. And by the way, all of us who are perfect have this idea. He says, I haven't become perfect, but all of us who are mature have this idea. He's using a play on words. If you've got a right mindset about your Christian life, you realize you haven't got there yet. 
And then he goes on to say there in verse 15, but if, if you think you are, God will take care of that. God will reveal that to you also. If you think you've arrived, the Lord will show you you haven't. It's that idea. Well, here's the second principle that we cooperate with God's work in our lives by pursuing Christ as top priority. We cooperate with God's work in our lives by pursuing Christ as top priority. God does the changing, but we cooperate. How do we cooperate with what God's doing in our lives? We pursue Christ as top priority. Notice Paul says, he says, I'm not perfect yet. It's God who perfects us. In fact, that is the same word, which is kind of a neat thing. God will perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm not there yet. God, God will perfect us. But he does say this, the one thing I do, verse 12, forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. I'm pressing on, verse 14, for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even though I'm not perfect, Paul says, I reach for it. I strive for it. I never stop my ceaseless efforts to honor God, to know Christ, for whom I've given up all things in this life. The goal is progress, not perfection. The goal is progress, not perfection. By God's grace, we should be able to look at the stalactite of our life and see it just a little longer than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Just a little longer. And, and you know how stalactites grow, just drip by drip. That's how we grow, isn't it? We, we hardly ever grow by leaps and bounds. So often it is slow growth by following Jesus. Okay, now... And we're jumping around a lot, but such is the nature of just being in a book for one Sunday. Look at Philippians chapter 1 now, and let's read a couple of verses, starting in verse 12. Remember, Paul was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote this. He was a prisoner in Rome. Had he been a prisoner before? Absolutely. In Philippi, wasn't he? He was a prisoner in Philippi. And remember that as we read verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I love uh, what you were sharing earlier, uh, Jim, about Mike's perspective on whatever message that was before, that the struggles draw us closer to Christ. Paul is saying the same thing once again, isn't he? He says, because of my imprisonment, verse 14, most of the brethren have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul says, my, my imprisonment, that's no big deal. Look what's happening as a result of it. More and more people are coming to know the Lord. This is a trust in the great sovereignty of God. If you can be in a bad way in your life and realize, you know, I don't know why the Lord's allowing this to happen, whether it's an um, uh, imprisonment or looking back at Paul's earlier experience, whether it was trying to go here and the door slams shut, try to go here and the door slams shut, 
God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you are doing it. And it seems like a few steps back, and by the way, these stripes on my back really hurt, but God, I'm going to trust you that this pain has a purpose. And the purpose isn't pain for pain's sake. There is a purpose beyond it, even though I don't see it. Paul understands that his circumstances have turned out, he says there in verse 12, for the greater progress of the gospel. And I, I love that because the Philippian jailer would have read these words. He was part of the church when they read this. The Philippian jailer would have, would have realized, wow, my imprisonment has turned out for the greater cause of the gospel. The Philippian jailer could stand up and go, that was me. That happened because of me. Paul was in prison and I got saved because he was in prison. That was me. And it also was happening now in Rome. The same is true in our struggles. Paul was embarrassed. We're going to be embarrassed sometimes. Paul's rights were violated in Philippi. That may happen to us. We may go through something legally that isn't right. And God may have a purpose that's bigger than simply our rights. Paul was beaten and imprisoned, but Paul saw a bigger purpose than simply the injustice he was enduring. He saw God's hand at work. Well, here's principle number three, the final one. God alone knows the methods and the timing necessary for spiritual growth. God alone knows the methods and timing necessary for spiritual growth. Think back to what we read in the book of Acts. Don't need to turn back there, just think back there. When Paul first came, you remember he was trying to go to these places and the doors kept slamming shut. And you may not remember this specific area, but one of the couple of the areas were Asia, which is modern Turkey, and Bithynia, which is modern northern Turkey, up by the Black Sea area. So Asia and Bithynia, I mean, the door slammed shut. God says, nope, don't want you going there. And our question could be, well, Lord, don't you want Asia and Bithynia to hear the gospel? I mean, it's great that Lydia and Europe got the gospel, but what about Asia? Don't, what about there? Well, in just a matter of a few years, every one of these individuals, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the very individuals that got their noses bent because the door slammed on it, God would send back to that very place to be able to go to Asia and Bithynia. How did it happen? Remember, in Paul's life, he traveled to Asia on the next couple of missionary journeys. In fact, even lived there on the third missionary journey in the city of Ephesus, which was like major Asia of that time. And Paul, when he was imprisoned, would write to the churches of Asia. The same time he wrote Philippians, he also wrote Colossians and Philemon, uh, which was in Asia, and also the, uh, the church of Laodicea. And then what about Silas? Well, remember Silas, Silas's name was also Silvanus. Silvanus, here's a big trivia for you, helped which apostle write which epistle? That is a little tricky, isn't it? Well, 1 Peter. If you read the end of 1 Peter, 1 Peter says that uh, Silvanus helped him write 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written to what area? If you read the very first part of 1 Peter, it says to Asia and Bithynia and a few other places. So Silas was part of the very, ministering to the very area that he didn't get to go earlier. And most likely, Silas delivered the letter, so he would have gone to this area. And then finally, Timothy. What about Timothy? Timothy served as the pastor of Ephesus 
in Asia. So each of these individuals is sort of a poetic, beautiful justice of God's working. That uh, even though the Lord said, nope, don't want you going there, each man to a person got to go eventually. So bottom line, the reasons for God closing the doors on the past became clear. In God's foreknowledge, he wanted Asia and Bithynia saved, but he wanted Europe saved first. Think about your life now. That means that the biblical passions that you have for life and ministry and family, I mean, we've got lots of dreams Good, godly dreams. And sometimes those are going to bump up against closed doors. There's something that you really want that's clearly God's will. You've got your verse. You've got, you got it on a plaque on your wall. But the door's not opening. Why? Well, uh, Paul's experience headed to Philippi shows us that part of it, that the roadblocks show up in various ways. Maybe it's a relationship that stays strained. Maybe it's a a ministry effort that can't start or a job search that just won't land. Maybe a close friend that won't change. They confuse us because they seem to contradict the will of God. Let's look at one final verse here in Philippians. And that's Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. Philippians 2, 10, and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You know what that means? That means Tom Cruise one day is going to say Jesus Christ is Lord. Think of, think of anybody in your life that you think is probably not ever going to say that. They'll say it one day. Now, there's two ways to say it. There's two ways to kneel, aren't there? There's kneeling in reverence, and there's being forced to your knees. There's different ways to kneel, but every knee's going to bow. Whether you are doing it because you are in terror and it is right to honor God, or you're doing it from an act of worship because His grace on your life has sent Jesus Christ, and you've accepted him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. I don't know if you know, you can see it in your verse 10, but Paul is quoting an Old Testament reference where he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I've only got four words there, but every knee will bow is actually a cross-reference to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. You don't need to turn there, but here's what Isaiah 45, 23 says. To me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. When you see a, an Old Testament reference, uh, a friend of mine said, think of it like a, a hyperlink to the Old Testament context. I love that because it is a great way to think about it. When you are reading like a web page and you see a hyperlink, you click on that hyperlink and up comes you know, a whole new context for you. That's what Old Testament quotations are. When you see an Old Testament quotation, that's like a hyperlink, not only to that Old Testament quotation, but to that quotation's whole context. What's the context of every knee will bow in heaven and earth? Well, Isaiah is writing about how Assyria and Egypt will one day build a highway to the Holy Land and the kingdom of God, and they will come and they will worship the Lord. And so he says every knee is going to bow. 
even Assyria and Egypt, or that's modern Iraq and Egypt. The predominantly Muslim nations of Egypt and Iraq were told one day, when Jesus Christ rules in the kingdom, they are going to say Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That seems an absolute marvel, doesn't it, when we think about that today? And yet that's exactly what's promised. God can do that. So when you think about these closed doors, when you think about the person that just won't change, when you think about your own hard heart that is so slow to change, remember God's will also includes God's timing. We saw that from Acts, the book of Acts, didn't we? It wasn't that God didn't want Asian Bithynia to hear the word of God. It just wasn't time. But boy, when it was time, I mean, that place got inundated with truth and people were converted. God may want exactly what you're wanting him to give you, but in his time. And his time is the time we want it, not the time that we, we think we want it. So here's the, uh, the final principles, uh, all, all three principles, one, one more time. God alone opens our heart to Christ for spiritual growth. It's, he alone does it. Second, we cooperate with God's work in our lives by pursuing Christ as top priority. And finally, God alone knows the methods and the timing necessary for spiritual growth. I don't know if you've noticed in your life, but the Lord seems to reveal his will just as much by slamming doors as he does by opening doors. Both are direction, aren't they? And both are God's gift. Slamming doors aren't as exciting as doors that open, but they are just as essential because otherwise we might walk through them and we will find ourselves in an area that initially might seem pleasing to us but will be not near what they could potentially be if we had followed God. One more time, just let me ask you about that person that just refuses to change. You know, it's real easy if we had um, looked at Peter's life, for example, and evaluated his whole life the moment that he denied Christ. We think, oh, what a tragedy. What a tragic life. No, that was only chapter 15 of a 30-chapter life. You may be in chapter 15. Well, of your own life, you definitely are. But remember that in other people's lives, too. They're still in chapter 15. They're still in process. God is working in their life to change them drip by drip, just like he is you. So... Why, doesn't, why don't people change? Well, same reason we don't. We're still waiting on God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for all the closed doors in our past. In hindsight, we can look back and thank you for those many times that you've said no to us because we see your wisdom in it. But at the time, we were just confused at why you were so mean. The truth is you're so loving. You say no so that you can give us a better yes in the future. We see that in the life of Paul and in the church at Philippi and in this wonderful epistle that Paul writes these great truths of how you, Lord, are the one who ultimately changes lives, beginning with our own. So as we 
rub up against those individuals that are just so slow to change. Give us great grace in their lives, just as you give us great grace in ours. As you wait on us to respond to your word and to the earthquakes that you bring along, that we might respond and follow you into the open door that you have before us. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truth of the word, that it's not just words on a page, but it means something in our lives today that we can take and apply this very hour. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.